James chapter 2. Let's stand, please, for the reading of God's word. Beginning, please, with verse 14. James says, What doth it profit, my brethren? Though a man say, Have faith, and have not works, can faith work, and that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, and be ye warmed, and be ye filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered his son Isaac upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works and with work by faith was works made perfect? Thank you very much. You may be seated. When Martin Luther came to this passage of scripture, he overreacted and he said that the book of James should not be included in the canon of the New Testament. Now, when you realize from whence he had come, you've got to be somewhat sympathetic with his overreaction. You see, he had crawled up the Holy Church of the Holy Stairs in Rome and he got to a locked Bible and he read in Habakkuk 2 and verse 4, the just shall live by faith. And so on further investigation, he found that that verse was repeated three times in the New Testament. In Galatians 3.11, Hebrews 10.28, and also in, uh, Galatians, in uh, uh, Romans 1 and verse 17. So he said there is a contradiction between Paul and James. Paul says that a man is justified by his faith. However, uh, James says that a man is justified by his work. So there's a contradiction there. But the thing that Martin Luther did not take into account was this. When Paul was writing, he was writing from God's viewpoint. In the eyes of God, a man is justified by his faith. But James is writing from man's viewpoint. James is saying that a man cannot see our faith unless it is manifested in our lives. So in the eyes of man, a man is justified by his works. However, there is absolutely no contradiction between Paul and James. Both are in agreement that a person is saved by faith and then that will follow to evidence in his life that he has been saved by his, in his works. Uh, Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. All right, that's faith, right? But then he adds Ephesians 2 and verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Again, Paul said in Titus 3 and verse 5, 
not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. All right, that's faith. But then he adds in Titus 3 and verse 8, and this is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God get it, should be careful to maintain good works. So Paul and James are in agreement. There is faith that saves, and the works will follow the evidence that we really have been saved. Now this morning I want to speak on the subject, saving faith, saving faith. I want you to notice, please, again, verse 14. James says, what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works, can faith or can that kind of faith save him? Now, if I interpret that verse correctly, there is a faith that saves and there is a faith that does not save. Which do you have this morning? Now, I want us to look at saving faith in three ways. Number one, a profitless faith. Now, if you will notice verse 14, verse 16, and verse 18, all three verses have the same three-letter word, S-A-Y, S-A-Y, S-A-Y. James, in essence, is saying this. It really doesn't matter what our lips say. It is a whole lot more important what our life says. I ask you this morning, does your life betray the profession of your lips? Then he goes on and he gives us an illustration. Uh, It says, here's a destitute Christian brother who is in need of food, clothing, and shelter. Well, an affluent Christian comes along and he sees his uh, destitute brother's need and he says something like this. I see you're in need of food, clothing, and shelter. Well, God bless you. I hope God meets your needs and he passes by. And James says that's a profitless faith. It reminds me, Pastor, when I was a student at Bob Jones. By the way, let me say this. Bob Jones is not today what it was then. But anyway, uh, I was going home for Christmas uh, in my freshman year, and Marv Frey, one of my good friends who'd been a missionary in Brazil for 40 years now, Uh, He was going home with me. And we stood on Route 29 with our thumb out waiting for a ride. And we stood there so long, I looked at Marv and I said, Marv, I'm tired of standing here. I said, if anybody comes along and says they're going slightly north, whether it's northeast, northwest, or straight north, I said, let's take the ride. He said, well, I'm for that. Now, my wife will tell you that I am directionally challenged. When you give me directions, don't give me any of this east and west business. I don't understand that. I do understand right and left, but I don't understand east and west. Several years ago when the GPSs came out, my wife bought me a GPS for Christmas. And you know, I never thought I'd have two women telling me what to do all my life. 
But I listen to that woman in that little box, and when I do, I wind up in the right place. Well, we stood there for a long time, and finally a man stopped, and he said, I'm going to West Virginia. I looked at Marv, and I said, praise God. Let's go to West Virginia. Now, excuse me. I had never been to West Virginia before, and I am sorry that my wife, who is a loyal West Virginian, is in the auditorium this morning. You know, I tell her that West Virginia people are the most loyal people I know. I don't know why they all move out of the state when they get old enough, but uh, they're loyal. And she would have you know that if West Virginia were rolled out flat, it would be much bigger than the state of Texas. But anyway, she says, honey, when you go into West Virginia, you see a sign that says West Virginia, almost heaven. I say, yes, but who wants to go to purgatory? But anyway, so uh, if you will look at a map, you will see that Elmira, New York, where my parents were living at that time, was straight north of Greenville, South Carolina. In those days, there were no interstate highways, and it was an arduous 700-mile trip. But we got in this car, second week of December, and we got put out south of Beckley, West Virginia, in the mountains. Folks, we got put out at 12 o'clock. It was a snow blizzard. And Marv and I walked back and forth seven and a half hours to keep from freezing to death. And that night I said, Lord, I'll go anywhere you want me to go, but please don't lead me to West Virginia. You know where he led me? West Virginia. I got a wife out of it. But anyway... We got put out in the middle of nowhere on Route 19. Now, in those days, there was not the other way to go through Somerville, uh, and it was a snake going through West Virginia Route 19. My mother-in-law lived on Route 19 in Clarksburg, and she lived on a curve. If you live on Route 19, you live on a curve. But anyway, uh, we were walking back and forth that night, and about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, a man stopped and he said, what are you fellas doing out on a night like tonight? I said, sir, I don't know. He said, well, you ought to be in bed at this time in a warm house. I said, you couldn't be more right. He said, well, good luck. I hope somebody picks you up and takes you home. Now... Excuse me, my carnal nature got the best and I felt like ice picking his tires at that time. But anyway, by the way, we did not die. We survived and finally got to Elmira, New York. But that's the illustration that uh, James gives us. Now, I believe that uh, Matthew 7 and verse 1 may be one of the most misused verses in the Bible. It says, judge not that she be not judged. 
And so you, like I, have talked to somebody about a mutual acquaintance and you said, is so-and-so saved? And they may have said, well, you know, you can't tell. The Bible says, judge not that you be not judged. Now, if you use that verse and that verse that way, you are resting the scripture. It doesn't mean any such thing. It is a sermon on the mount. Jesus is talking to his disciples. And in Matthew 7 and verse 3, he said, Why beholdest the mote that's in thy brother's eye, and considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? So here's what he's saying. If you've got a lot of sin in your own life, don't try to get a little sin out of a Christian brother's life. But you go down to verses 21 through 23, Matthew 7. You have an entirely different context. It says, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So God is saying that we can take the Bible and measure it by a person's life and we can probably tell whether or not he's really been saved. Now, this passage is tremendous. It talks about fundamental preachers. They were not liberal preachers. They preached in the name of Jesus. They did many miracles in the name of Jesus. But Jesus said, wait a minute. I never knew you. Your name's not in the book of life. In the Greek language, there's a double negative, and he says, I never, no, I never knew you. He didn't say you were saved once and you lost your salvation. He said you were a phony all the time. Now, I think of that. Pastor, here are fundamental Bible-believing preachers that are one day going to be cast into hell. And they're going to plead their good works. And God's going to say the church role and the book of life are not synonymous. Your name's not in the book. I never, no, I positively never knew you. Now, I think of that. Brother Capel, if God is going to turn away some miracle worker, Bible-believing preachers, I wonder about that person who comes one hour on Sunday morning. He tips his hat to God. He never gets under conviction about anything. He never reads his Bible. He's never bothered by people using God's name in vain on the job. If God's going to turn away Bible preachers, there's not going to be much of a chance for somebody like that. So number one, we notice a profitless faith. Now, number two, I want you to notice a proven faith. Will you notice, please, verse 21? Now, I am going to pause in this verse. When I pause, you supply the next word. Now, here's an interesting thing. Uh, most of us know that Hebrews chapter 11 uses the word faith more than any other chapter in the Bible. But do you know what chapter uses it the second most amount of times? James chapter 2. 
Isn't that interesting? All right, notice please verse 21. Now when I pause, you supply the next word. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by by what? By works when he had offered his son Isaac upon the altar. All right, how do you correlate that with Romans 4, 2, and 3? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. But what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. All right, James 2, 21 says Abraham was justified by works. Romans 4, 2, and 3, Paul says that Abraham was justified by his faith, which is correct. Both are correct. All right, let me explain. In Genesis chapter 11, Abraham is in the land of the Ur of the Chaldees. The Ur of the Chaldees was a land of idolatry. Abraham's daddy, Terah, died an idol worshiper, Joshua 24 and verse two. So God reaches down in the land of the earth, the Chaldees. And in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three, now the Lord had said unto Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So God reaches down in the land of idolatry and he says, Abraham, go to the land that I'll show you. Abraham had never been to the land of Canaan. He didn't know what the land of Canaan was like for raising cattle. But I will tell you, his eyes were far above the land of Canaan. He looked for a city that had foundation whose builder and maker is God. So when he left the earth of the Chaldees and he went toward Canaan, he was changing gods. There he was justified by his faith. Now, in the Abrahamic covenant, and by the way, Abraham is uh, 65 to 75 years old. Sarah is 55 to 65 years old. So he reaches down there without children and he says, one day I'm gonna make your seed as the stars of the sky, the sand of the seashore. Now here's a principle. If God had given Sarah a baby at the age of 55, you know what medical science would have said? They would have said it's possible, but it's not probable. You see, I read about a lady in Florida just a couple of years ago, 58 years old, that had twins. It's possible, but it's not probable. So God did not give her a baby at that time. All right, the scene changes, Genesis chapter 16. And so Sarah pushes the panic button and she says, hey, bunny, God didn't mean that I was gonna bear your child. I'm too old for that. Evidently, God meant that Hagar was gonna bear your child. Now, folks, that's a tremendous study in Genesis 12. On the way to Canaan, Abraham backslid and he went down to Egypt. Egypt being a type of the world as we were told on Wednesday night. And ladies and gentlemen, 
When he came out of Egypt, who did he take with him? Almost every time you have the word Hagar mentioned, you have the addendum, Hagar the Egyptian. Hagar the Egyptian. You know what God is saying? There are consequences for a child of God going down to Egypt, the world. So Abraham goes into Hagar and he has a baby, Ishmael. Do you know what 9-11 is all about? It was all about Genesis chapter 16 where Abraham disobeyed God and he went into Hagar. Ishmael, the father of the Arab nation. Now, Genesis 17, again, the scene changes. In verse one, it says, now when Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, I am almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. Now, this is the first time in the Bible where God addresses himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty. You know what he's telling Abraham? He's saying, Abe, listen, if I could create a universe in six days, I could give a 90-year-old woman a baby. Now, remember, if he had given her a baby at 55, it's possible, not probable. But... He waited till she was 90 years old and medical science had to say it's not possible. Man's extremities are God's opportunities. Did you get that? When I come to the end of myself and I say, Lord, I can't do it, God says, I'm almighty God. You know, for two years, Marco, as I laid the foundation for Ambassador Baptist College, I had 12 of my good preacher friends either cancel meetings with me or not schedule me back. Why? They were afraid that I would take some preacher boys away from their alma mater. And many times after a service like this, at nighttime, after the service, I'd go to the RV and I'd be in bed with my head covered up and I'd be weeping. And my wife would come in and say, honey, why are you weeping? I'd say, honey, I can't do it. It's impossible. I can't start a school. God had to get me to that place where if ambassador ever became a reality, I knew that God did it and Ron Comfort didn't do it. I've told our students through the years, don't ever refer to ambassador of Baptist College as Ron Comfort School. If it were, the doors would have been closed years ago. Every place you look on that campus is a miracle that God did. So, again, God gives Sarah a baby at the age of 90. Again, the scene changes, Genesis 22. Now, a lot of times in our minds, we picture Abraham taking Isaac up to the mountain where he's a little boy. That's not true. Isaac was a type of Christ. He was between 30 and 35 years of age. And so in Genesis 22 in verse two, God looks down to Abraham and he says, Abraham, take thy son Isaac, thy son whom thou lovest, and get thee hence to the land of Moriah and offer him there upon a mountain which I will tell thee of. Do you know what the word Moriah means? The Lord will provide. 
So they go a three days journey. That's significant. Why? Three is the number of the resurrection. So they get to the land of Moriah, the Lord will provide. In Genesis 22 and verse five, he tells the men, you stay here with the ass, get it. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and we will come again to you. Do you know what? To Abraham, his son Isaac was already a dead man. But to Abraham, by faith, his son Isaac had already been raised from the dead. Here is a beautiful story. Here you have Isaac and Abraham going up to the mountain this way. You know what God has coming up the other side of the mountain? He's got a lamb. The Lord will provide. I've seen this so many times at Ambassador. In 1991, when our dollar was worth a whole lot more than it is now, I had our ensemble in Raleigh, North Carolina. And the next week, I got a letter from a lady which kept two of our girls. And she said, I'm so impressed with the students from Ambassador that we've met. She said, I want to have a part in their training. And I am sending a check for you to put on the bills of those who are in need. You know how much that check was for? $30,000, which probably would be equivalent to $100,000 today. And folks, I was like a kid in a candy store. I put that on 63 different students' bills. Here they were coming up the mountain this way, not knowing how God was going to meet their need, and God had a lamb coming up the other side. Isn't that beautiful? So he gets to the top of the mountain, and Isaac said, Dad, here's the wood, here's the fire, here's the altar, but where's the lamb? Prophetically speaking, Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb. So he binds his son, takes the knife back, is about to plunge it through the body of his son, and God reaches over the embattlements of heaven, grabs his hand and says, no. He said, years ago, you've shown the worlds to come. You're justified by your faith. Now you've shown the worlds to come. You're justified by your works. There's a lamb caught in the thicket. Put that lamb on the altar and offer that lamb as the sacrifice. God will provide himself a lamb. You know what Abraham is called in verse 23? He is called the friend of God because he obeyed God. R.A. Torrey was preaching one night and he was told about a wayward preacher's son who was in the congregation. He directed many of his remarks to that wayward preacher's son. When the service was over, Tory was at the back shaking hands. And this wayward preacher's son came out the door. He took Tory by the hand and Dr. Tory said, young man, are you a friend of God? He said, why sure, Dr. Tory, I'm a friend of God. Tory turned to John 15 and verse 14. Notice, ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I've commanded you. He said, well, I guess I'm not a friend of God. Are you a friend of God this morning? You say, Lord, I'll do anything you want me to do, but I won't get baptized and join the church. Don't call yourself a friend of God. 
Lord, I'll do anything you want me to do, but I won't tithe. I won't go soul winning. I won't go to prayer meeting. Don't you call yourself a friend of God. If you say, I'll do anything, but you are not a friend of God. All right, number one, we have noticed a profitless faith. Number two, a proven faith. All right, notice please verse 23 where we see a perfected faith. Verse 22, seest thou how Abraham wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect. Now, if I were you, I would underline the word perfect in my Bible and I would put in the margin of my Bible fully grown or mature. God has nothing to say about sinless perfection. He has a whole lot to say about becoming mature or fully grown. And 30 years ago, a man in Clarksburg, West Virginia said, Brother Comfort, I haven't sinned in 28 years. My, what a record. He ought to be in Ripley's, believe it or not. You know what I say? Ask his wife and she'll tell you different. Now, that's right. Before I got married, my wife said, honey, I think you're perfect. After we got married, Brother Bernie, she said, I made a mistake. You're not perfect. <laughs> and you don't have to be around me five minutes to realize I'm not perfect. Someone said the only reason the Pope thinks he's infallible is because he's not married. If he were married, his wife would tell him he wasn't infallible. <laughs> Now, the Bible has nothing to say about sinless perfection, has a whole lot to say about becoming mature or fully grown. Take your Bible in closing to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, he's talking to the saints at Corinth. So these are people that were saved people. Notice what he says, 1 Corinthians 3 verses 1 through 3. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as babes in Christ. For I fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you are not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there's among you envy and strife and division, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am a Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? All right, look this way. There's a play on the word carnal. It's used in two instances. In verse one, it's talking about the inability of a newborn baby. It cannot walk. It cannot talk. It cannot feed itself. It's totally dependent. That's not an indictment. That's a description of the inability of a newborn baby. You go down to verse three, for you're yet carnal. That's a different word. And that word is a person who's been saved for a long time, but they've never grown. They're still sucking on a bottle, spiritually speaking. Three things in closing about a carnal Christian. Number one, they're immature, immature. Now, pastor, if you are preaching and I am sitting on the second row and there's a lady in front of me with a newborn baby in her arms. I ain't looking at you. I'm looking at that little baby. There is no preacher in the world that can compete with a precious newborn baby. By the way, ladies, that's why we have nurseries for precious newborn babies. But five years later, 
That was a thing of beauty. Now it cannot talk, it cannot walk, it cannot feed itself. What was a thing of beauty now is a heartache to that child. I want to ask you, does God look down at this service this morning and say, there's so-and-so, he's been saved for 10 years and he's never grown. He's still sucking on a bottle, spiritually speaking. I had a pastor tell me 61 years ago when I started in evangelism, he said, Brother Comfort, don't take anything for granted when you preach. He said the average fundamental Baptist in the pew, the only Bible he gets is what he hears preached from the pulpit. I want to ask you a question. If a JW came to your door and he knocked on your door on Saturday and he opened his New World Translation and he said, look at here at John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was a God. Could you disprove that? Could you show him Isaiah 9 and verse 6? His name shall be called the mighty God. Could you show him Matthew 1 and verse 23? His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Could you show him John 20, 28? Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. Could you show him Acts 20, 28? where Jesus, where God says that the blood of Jesus was the blood of God. Could you show him 1 Timothy 3.16? For great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Could you show him Colossians 2 and verse 9? For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Could you show him Hebrews 1 and verse 8? Where God the Father calls Jesus Christ God the Son. Could you show him Jude verse 25? Where he is the everlasting God. Ladies and gentlemen, are you immature still sucking on a bottle, spiritually speaking. All right, number one, they were immature. Number two, they were incompatible. There were divisions among them. I preach this, Pastor, that the thing that is keeping us from having revival in our fundamental churches is not the sins of the flesh, but it's the sins of the spirit. Hey, you take the prodigal son, what was he guilty of? Sins of the flesh. But you know how the story ends? The prodigal son's back at his daddy's house. But then you have the elder brother. What sin was he guilty of? The sins of the spirit. Jealous, bitter, rebellious. And the story ends with the elder brother not back at his daddy's house. I wonder, my friend, is there anybody you can think of that you're bitter toward. If you are bitter toward anybody, you are not a candidate for revival. Dr. Ed Nelson, who is now in heaven, one of my good friends, asked me if I would come and preach the last week that he was gonna pastor that church. He was gonna turn it over to a young man after that meeting. And so for years, I would take combined Sunday school class and no matter what I would preach, when I spoke in the opening service, I would always hit bitterness. And I made the statement, you are not a candidate for revival 
if you have bitterness in your heart toward anybody. After Sunday school was over, a lady left the church and she came back in halfway through the morning service as I was preaching. After I got through preaching, she came to me and she said, Brother Comfort, did you notice that I left after Sunday school and I came in in the middle of the morning service? I said, yes, ma'am, I did. She said, you want to know why? I said, if you'll tell me. She said, you said I was not a candidate for revival if I had bitterness in my heart toward anybody. And she said, I went after Sunday school to that person with whom I was bitter. And I got right with them. And she said, Brother Comfort, now I'm a candidate for revival. I want to ask you, is there somebody you need to get right with? They were incompatible, divisive. And then number three, they were inconsistent. They said they were saved, but their neighbors couldn't tell it. You know, one of the people I love to read after is George Mueller. How many of you have read anything about George Mueller? If you haven't, you ought to. When George Mueller died, they looked in his prayer diary and they found 56,000 dated definite answers to prayer. Somebody said every prayer that George Mueller prayed in his lifetime that anybody knew anything about was answered except one. He prayed 65 years for a brother to be saved. His brother was not saved. George Mueller died and then his brother was saved. And uh, I read an interesting story about Charles Spurgeon. He was preaching on a Sunday afternoon as a visiting speaker. And after the service, they gave him a check. And he said, this is wonderful. He said, I've been wanting to redecorate my study and now I can do it. I've got this check and this is what it, it takes to do my office. And so as he left, he got to thinking about that and God began to speak to his heart and he said, now, uh, Spurgeon, you're not gonna redecorate your study with that. You're gonna give it to George Mueller. And he began to argue with God. He said, God, uh, Mueller can pray it in from someplace else. He said, I wanna redecorate my study. And God seemed to lay on his heart, if you don't give that to George Mueller, you're gonna miss a blessing that I have for you. So he went over to Mueller's orphanage, knocked on the door. Mueller had just gotten up from his knees praying for the exact amount the check was for. So when Mueller came to the door, Spurgeon took the check and shoved it in his chest and said, here, take this. And he went away arguing with God. He went back to his study. He sat down at his desk and there was an envelope on his desk. He opened the envelope and there was a check for the exact amount that he had given to George Mueller. Somebody said, I'd love to have the faith of a George Mueller. You can have it. You know how he got that? By sleeping with his Bible under his pillow. No, that's not the way he got that. He read his Bible through from Genesis to Revelation 200 times. 100 times he read it through on his knees. If you want to have the faith of a George Mueller, you've got to have the Bible of a George Mueller. Let me ask you, do you read this book daily? You tell me how much you read this book 
And I'll tell you how much you love its author, Jesus Christ. When you love somebody, you want to find out more about them. And the only way you can find out about Jesus is in this book. You tell me how much you read this book, and I'll tell you how much you love Jesus Christ.